Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the editor-in-chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Nick Stone. He's the founder and CEO of Bluestone Lane, which is a coffee chain that has been growing a lot over the last few years. It's been around, I'm pretty sure, for about 10 years, but I know that you guys have been on an opening spree and also some some fun partnerships over the last year that have been really interesting. I want to get into all of that. I want to talk about what it's like being in the world of coffee. Nick has an interesting background, I'm pretty sure, where I think you were a pro footballer, if I'm not mistaken, and then became a banker and then got into coffee, which I'm sure you're going to explain much more correctly than I do when I ask you about your background. But anyway, Nick, how are you? How's it going? Hi, Kale. I'm really well. Great to be on the podcast with you and uh, always exciting on a Friday morning. Sun's out, feeling good. Perfect time to go and visit a Bluestone Lane for a flat white. So uh, thanks for having me on. I wish I could have a flat white right now as well. So um, for first, can you give me a little bit of background about who you are? Am I correct that you used to be a pro footballer? You are correct. Yes, I'm originally from... Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, many moons ago. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I was, I'm originally from Melbourne, Australia, and uh, I was indeed drafted to play professionally in the Australian Football League, which is an Indigenous football code, not commonly found in the US, that's for sure, but it is the most, <laughs> <laughs> it's the most popular code, uh, football code in Australia, and it, we have crowds of up to 100,000 people. Uh, so I played in front of 70,000, 80,000. And uh, I, I was at three teams, so definitely a journeyman, two years at three teams, all, all clubs based in Melbourne, which was very fortunate. So I was able to sort of stay living at home during that period. But uh, while I was playing, I, I went to university at the same time. So when one chapter closed in that my first profession, being a professional athlete, I went straight into banking and uh, did that for a number of years until we launched Bluestone Lane as a little side hustle, a little, a little experiment uh, to essentially create a coffee shop or, uh, that emulated what you'd commonly find in Australia. And uh, from there, yeah, you're exactly right, 10 years ago, um, from that small hole in the wall to now in nine markets in the US uh, with over 60 locations has been a great achievement considering we've had an existential retail crisis in the middle being COVID. Yeah, I was doing a bunch of research and I read about you did an as told to in the New York Times about how crazy it was, uh, which was why it was sort of like stepping back in time, remembering just the sheer uncertainty and franticness of when everything closed. And especially for business owners like you, like, what do you do? And so I want to get into all of that. But can you first, th- this is a question I, I love to ask. I, I love coffee. Uh, it's something that uh, listeners of the podcast probably know we have coffee people on here sometimes and I just like to nerd out about it. But there's something I want to ask you specifically, which is people always talk about Australian coffee culture. What does that exactly mean? And so like I have a vague idea and I know that it like flat whites are generally what I associate with Australian coffee culture. But how would you say a Bluestone Lane like retail concept differs from a third wave American coffee shop concept? Well, I... It's a really interesting question because it is quite detailed. Uh, Australia was primarily a tea-based drinking society, which is very much influenced from this British Commonwealth uh, influence. We didn't have a drip coffee culture. Uh, We still don't. So just getting a cup of joe and sitting on a a litre and drinking this coffee that's that's brewed uh, is not part of the way of life in Australia 
Australia drank tea, and then we had mass migration pre and post World War II from Europe, particularly Italians, Greeks, uh, Maltese, and they brought their uh, espresso machines. So we went from tea-based to espresso coffee-based. So what's so interesting about the Australian coffee culture is espresso became more commercialized beginning in the 40s and 50s, where in the States it really happened in the 90s. And it was Starbucks that commercialised espresso-based coffee. So what's happened is Australia's just been probably a couple of decades in advance on this more artisanal, more specialty way of drinking coffee rather than batch brewed but brewed a cup. And uh, when people ask about what's the difference, well, in Australia, the, it's the landscape, the coffee consumption is not dominated by chains, where in the U.S., People sort of struggle to realize that nearly 70% of all coffee shops in the US are either Starbucks or Dunkin'. In Australia, there is no Dunkin'. Starbucks failed in Australia. There's no Pete's, there's no Tim Hortons, there's no coffee bean and tea leaf. It is the land of independence. So what that has mean is you've had a very, very fastidious approach on artisanal coffee, more specialty coffee, uh, and combining with that has been this focus on more sophisticated yet accessible healthy food which is leveraging a lot of the natural abundance and quality ingredients that you get in Australia but being a country the size of continental US but only having 25 million people and the majority of the population overwhelmingly live on the coast. So what's overlapping those both these facets is the fact that if everyone has great quality coffee, if everyone if the standard is this third or fourth wave you're referring to, How do you really sustainably compete? And the most critical thing in Australia is hospitality. It's all about having locals, not customers. So that commitment towards hospitality, making someone feel good, being part of their daily ritual is more important than the quality of coffee. So these businesses down there are led through service. They're led through hospitality. Where I found when I moved to the US that a lot of the coffee uh, landscape was dominated by product, not service. I don't think it's an un- it's, it's, it's an unjust claim to say that both Starbucks and Dunkin' are really focused on hospitality. I think they're very much focused on convenience and speed of getting a product to someone in a really efficient way, primarily through drive-through or smaller stores, which aren't really built around creating this amazing atmosphere and, and, and in-store dining experience, which really is symbolic of what the focus is in Australia. I'd even add something to that, which I really like that answer and I've never thought about it that way. But like, even if you go to the artisanal coffee shops in the United States and something that I do a lot and I, I kind of like about them, but they're more focused on the product and not necessarily the service. Cause there's, there's sort of a, a well-known austereness or like coolness or hipness that make that there's sort of a, they're very cold um, often, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, what, what, do you agree with that? Yeah. Well, honestly, that was one of the reasons why I started Bluestone was, I couldn't believe that the more specialty coffee shops came across at times as a little bit pretentious, yeah. a little bit cold, that if you ask for milk in a beverage, you're viewed as a second-class citizen. <laughs> and that was very strange to me because you charge more for someone that has a milk-based beverage like a latte than you do for straight, you know, for a, an Americana or a long black. So, you know, I think that ultimately coffee shops should be about driving community. And it should be about driving this ritual where people look forward to having the experience on a daily basis where they leave feeling more excited about the world, 
and that they're, they're part of they're part of a business, they're part of a community. So we talk to our, we refer to ourselves as a human connection company, not a coffee company. And even though last year, for example, we won seven awards at the Golden Bean Coffee Awards, which is the most prestigious coffee roasting competition in the US, we won seven. We were the most awarded, but we still refer to ourselves as a human connection company that facilitates connections between people. And that is our North Star. That is our purpose, that we want to be this place where people find real community, have real human connection, actually attack some of these issues linked to mental health and isolation and loneliness and depression. But you can do that without compromising the quality of product you provide. And Australia is the perfect example because if you have a coffee shop or a cafe in Australia that has the best coffee, but if they deliver it in a way that is cold and impersonal and obnoxious, Australians will boycott it because nothing will ever supersede a commitment to making someone feel good and that hospitality ethos. And that's just the way it is back home. And that's what we've tried to emulate. It hasn't been anything really new. We've just tried to take those quintessential elements and then scale it in the US. So how, like, I wanted to ask you, how do you scale that when you're talking essentially about service? So like, what was different about the first one in terms of, was it, is it about training the the baristas differently or is it about telling them to be nice? What do you do? What did you do then? And what do you do now that you think embodies this, uh, this culture of warmth? Well, in hospitality, you really have no, in my opinion, you really have no intellectual property. I think that anyone can learn how to make a certain dish. I think everything's about these cultural norms that enable you to execute service really consistently so that people feel that it's an amazing dining experience. And even if it's a takeaway, it can still be an amazing dining experience for that, for that method or that channel or that use case. So there's nothing, if I'm coming in for a takeaway coffee, I could connect with the, the barista or the team there for under five seconds and still feel amazing. If I walk in and they go, Nick, how are you, mate? Uh, flat white to go? How's, how's your day? How's the kids? How's the dog? How's your footy team? That is an amazing experience. The music's right. The lighting's right. The cleanliness is right. The, the speed of service, the fulfillment speed's right. The taste is right. Like, that is an amazing experience, and it can be under a couple of minutes for us. We try and deliver takeaway coffee in under four minutes, right? So we've got these like mini, mini moments where we can be really impactful. So, you know, how do you do it? You ultimately it comes down to your culture. That is what your intellectual property will be in hospitality. It's your ability to execute and bring in people and have them buy into those norms, into those values. You see it happen a lot in these amazing hospitality groups. One group that I admire immensely is the Hillstone Group. I, you know, you go to a Hillstone restaurant, no matter where it is, I think you have the same expectation on the quality of service. Um, the food is pretty much always consistent. I don't think the food's remarkable, but it's really consistent. But the total experience, I think, is wonderful. And for us, that's what we're looking to achieve, this concept of boutique at scale, where you come in and we can deliver on our promise really, really well, and we make you feel like a local, not a customer, not just some you know, homogenous uh, you know, person that, that is just transactional. That's not for us. And now I don't think you, can, you compromise on speed. I don't think you have to compromise on quality of product. 
to be able to provide something that's more personalized because in this world, everyone loves recognition. And I could see it so profoundly when I moved to New York in these relationships that many and petty places would have with their customers, uh, that, that local bars would, that wash and fold places. I lived in West Village and there was like 10 places where you could get your washing done, but everyone would advocate for a particular one because of their relationship they would have with the proprietor. Same with class fitness. I just think that that's the way it is in Australia with coffee. And I just thought it's got to be this way in the US. It's just a matter of time if you don't. And like, I think the most critical thing is not compromising on speed. So, you know, you need to still be fast and efficient, but it doesn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't substitute the ability to know someone's name, face an order or look at them in the eye and project some warmth through a smile and just making them feel welcome and being grateful that, that it is a privilege to provide hospitality and to turn around someone that could have been a terrible evening or rough morning and just give them that energy that, hey, life's okay and, uh, you know, you're part of us and it's going to be it's going to be great. Absolutely. So with the overall business model, because correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have a little over 60 locations, right? Yes. Is the idea, is it just expansion of locations? Or I feel like when I talk with other coffee companies, they have other ambitions of maybe attempting to go into grocery, maybe doing this, but it seems like you're focused on the hospitality experience. Is that right? I think at some stage, we will definitely push further into CPG. But I think it's incredibly hard to do both at the same time, unless you have enormous resources. I think a lot of brands try and do both, and they get caught halfway. And I think it can be a really, really poor return on intellectual capital and financial capital. And I think COVID, honestly, COVID forced you to make some really, really hard decisions. We were we were pursuing a dual track approach. Uh, we launched uh, ready to drink two ready to drink uh, beverages. Uh, the Australian iced lattes. One ended up winning best new coffee beverage at Expo East. So our first entry, we won, thinking, right. wow, this is amazing. This is a great, you know, first entry gold medal. But once you sort of peel back the layers, you realize like how much capital and how much focus and the skill set required to, to build a CPG business while you've got this retail business that's already doing, you know, 50, 60 million at that stage it's hard it's hard to do both unless you just have an abundant resources covid forced you to rationalize and be really strict with what you can commit to so for us like we have our growth channels which are focused on uh, events wholesale coffee supply uh, some cpg um, primarily fresh direct and um, amazon and then we have uh, licensed stores, which is an increasingly larger part of our business, which is like the airport. We, we just opened in uh, Newick Terminal A, the brand new Terminal A. That's a licensed store for us. We have a licensed store on the 21st Century Fox lot, which is now the Disney production lot, um, where it's for all the staff. They have up to 5,000 staff on the lot there with their production. So they have a bluestone lane that's um, operated by them. It's under license. So... We're interested in those those avenues too, but to say like we are going to try and be in every Whole Foods and every uh, every Gelson's or every Sprouts or every Albertsons in the next couple of years, not really a big focus for us because we know over time we can always enter CPG if we have amazing tangible connections at our retail stores. 
And right now we serve 80,000 people a week. So I'd be very confident over time if we get retail right, we can diversify into CPG because there's a lot of people that will be locals to Bluestone and very familiar with our product, our brand, our values, and um, and what we stand for. Got it. Uh, I want to go into some of those other growth channels you mentioned. You mentioned wholesale. When you say wholesale, do you mean like selling your beans to other coffee shops? Yeah, we primarily focus on selling our beans to larger hospitality brands, so hotels, uh, and larger uh, conference centers, larger larger accounts. We, we have steered away from smaller coffee shops. Um, they're very intense. They're a very intense way to manage and grow the business. And we're more set up to support larger brands that have already, they may have 10 or 20 or 30 hotels under the banner. So that, that's been more of our focus, office buildings. Uh, so... That's what we've focused on and, uh, you know, we, we like the business because it's, it's often very stable. We, we can invest a ton of time into training and support and uh, we're not too fragmented and fractured all over the company uh, around the country, which then would detract potentially from our retail business and a retail focus. Can you say how much of your business is represented by that? Because I feel like that's like people love that because you don't have to put too much effort into it. And it's a hotel that takes your beans and then makes the coffee. So like, do you want that to be a major revenue driver or, or do you just want that to be a nice supplementary thing? I think for us that, listen, if it became a major revenue driver, that would be terrific, but I don't think <laughs> it's a real focus I, for us. Those relationships are so important because they introduce our, our brand and our coffee to someone new, uh, you know, potentially every minute, which is super exciting. So we'll only partner on wholesale with brands that align with our proposition. So it has to be premium, has to have a similar core customer overlap, um, and they need to have the requisite care, quality of equipment. Um, diligence around how they're going to prepare the beverages because we don't want we don't want the coffee made poorly. We don't want someone who who completely disregards coffee. Like we wouldn't enter in those relationships. So we're very selective, and it works really well. And we're we're so grateful for the wholesale partners. But you know, I think that it will never be absolutely massive because we don't want to do anything that erodes our proposition. And we won all those golden bean awards through a ton of effort and time and commitment we don't we don't want to we don't want to have a sort of any brand erosion there by partnering with the wrong group and that's our focus and a lot of our there's some of our contemporaries have gone the other way i i see their beans in little bodegas on the corner shop which could be great but for us in bluestone lane and that we're really focused on being offering this differentiated aspirational sort of lifestyle experience and our our stores are obviously mean so much to us we won't find our coffee within you know in everyone's hands it's it's not our focus got it got it can you talk a little bit about the the licensee i want because i had this in my notes i know that you're opening up in airports i didn't realize that it was a licensee instead of you guys owning and operating it how are you focusing on that service element like are are you worried that when you 
license your brand out to somewhere else, someplace as anonymous as an airport or, you know, some other venue that they could have a bad experience or it could be run by people who aren't as meticulous about it as you are? Yeah, certainly that can be a risk. Absolutely. But the groups you're primarily partnering with in airports are the most professional hospitality operators. They're specialists. And we wouldn't just partner with someone who's new or or lacks experience. So basically these hospitality concessions are bid out and the big global groups, HMS Host or Paradise or Villa Restaurant Group, they or Sodexo, what have you, they all bid for them and they'll win the bid and then they'll put together an F&B program or part of that bid it would be, hey, we're going to put in a Bluestone, we're going to put in a different burger concept or a different pizza concept, what have you. So they're very, very experienced in hospitality operations. And then as part of your sort of agreement, you're very clear on the governance, you're very clear on the brand standards, you're very clear on the expectation around execution. And then it's, you know, we spend an enormous amount of time training the team. And we we obviously have a governance um, review process and audit that happens on a really frequent basis. So of course, you, it's like any relationship, you, you've got to invest. There's always risk. But um, what we've found is the licensed relationships have worked extremely well. And if there's ever been an issue, we'll come in transparently, collaboratively and resolve it. And I've never had a pushback from a, a, a sort of a licensee saying, hey, we don't want to invest in more training or we don't want to um, make that change so the the experience is better, that that has been quite the office, opposites. And we're, but we're very early in our journey. But for us, we're looking to partner with very large hospitality, institutional hospitality operators, not, not just someone for the first time that's taking a license or, you know, a, a, you know less of that franchise model. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of governance. But, you know, what a wonderful opportunity to get into an airport. We're the first Australian brand to open in a U.S. major airport, you know, Outback, State, Outback Steakhouse is not Australian, right? It's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a concept that's been created here. But it's a huge moment, a huge acknowledgement to the coffee culture that you find in Australia and obviously a huge acknowledgement for Bluestone Lane's success in New York that we're in a, a major international airport in a brand-new terminal and... Uh, you know, a tremendous achievement, and we're looking to open a number of a uh, in a number of other airports. We've signed uh, a deal in JFK. We've got a deal at Boston Logan. We have another deal going in uh, JFK two, an additional terminal. We're, we're signed to go into Terminal Five. Hopefully, we're going to get into Terminal Eight. Um, and I think now, once we have one, and then you get two, suddenly the opportunities start accelerating because there's proof of concept, there's tangibility. Can you talk a little about the the retail strategy for this year? Because you're opening up a bunch of, of new stores, right? I feel like I can't remember what the target is, but you you have, you have some on the horizon. And where are you pre- predominantly opening them? How do you decide what areas to go in? All, all that. Yeah, really good question. Certainly, the real estate footprint has been shaped tremendously by COVID. We were we had a really precarious. Uh, real estate strategy going to COVID. We were so over-indexed in these urban, inner urban business districts 
we only had one suburban store and, you know, COVID showed everyone that the play was to be in the suburbs. If you wanted to have a business that survived, you've got to go where people were were residing, not where they're working. And Bluestone strategy was kind of the opposite. It was where people were going to work. And we had our cafes in residential areas, but they were primarily in you know, urban. Um, so since COVID, we've really, really focused on exclusively residential areas and we've pushed into a lot of these commuter suburbs so not deep suburban more like these commuter suburbs where people now um, perhaps have moved from downtown Manhattan now live outside of New York but they come in three days a week to work because they're you know they're now living a suburban life and they can work from home two days so that's been the real focus and the stores that we have outstanding to open this year are all in residential areas. So the next door to open, which is going to happen next week, is in the Woodlands in Greater Houston area, followed by uh, we have a store in the Marina District in San Francisco. Then we have a store opening in Princeton, New Jersey. Then we have a store opening in Paramus, New Jersey. So, um, you know, we, that, that's sort of indicative of where we've been focusing. And I think you'll see continued expansion into these suburban areas because the way that people work and the way, the way people live, I think, has changed. And, you know, it's our core customer that may have grown up with Bluestone when they lived in West Village or in Tribeca or in Upper East Side. A lot of them now have moved because they've got a little bit older, they might be married, might have kids, they've probably now moved to or considering moving to the suburbs because they have more flexibility with their commute. And, uh, you know, Bluestone is orientating that way. We'll still remain committed to inner urban, but certainly the growth will be in more of these suburban areas. That's super fascinating, especially when you see, like I'm, I've always been fascinated with the rise of like Blank Street, which seems like it's focused predominantly on really small, really urbanized areas. Um, and this is sort of the opposite of that. When you are focusing on these suburban areas, do different retail concepts work differently than they have traditionally in your Manhattan locations? Are they designed differently? I imagine you probably get bigger spaces just because of the nature of the space. But like I think about my how I work as, as a coffee drinker. And if I'm walking around Manhattan, I'll sit down. But if I'm driving somewhere, I might interact with the product a little bit differently. Am I, am I wrong about this? No, no, you're not at all. And I think for us, the coffee shop concept was very much based around people who are time sensitive, a captive audience. So honestly, it was designed for people in office buildings where they would come down and have a break, they'd have a coffee catch up. It probably wouldn't be 45 minutes or an hour. It was probably based around a beverage and a snack and just a way to facilitate connection outside of a typical office meeting room. And that predictability of demand was there until COVID. Now we don't have that predictability because you have half a day on Monday, you have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday pretty pretty stable, and then you have nothing on Friday. Like, you know, I don't know about anyone on this call, but it doesn't seem that anyone here is in an office. They're working from a home office, but not in a corporate office. And I don't foresee that changing. So what we've really focused on is cafes, which are broader extensions, which are built around uh, a a longer type of experience 
Now, we have changed the design there so they work very efficiently for people who just want to come in and grab a coffee and jump in their car. But they've always been larger because they're more suited towards the brunch time experience that you would find on the weekend, going out with your family, going out with friends. But now what we find is people are using our cafes uh, during the week when they're working from home to have a break between Zoom meetings or what have you. So they might come in now on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. They might come in Monday, Friday and Saturday rather than just sort of Saturday and Sunday where we would have 55 to 60% of the business. It's a bit more balanced now. So that has been the focus on these larger extensions that still has a flexibility to work like a coffee shop. So you can still order ahead via the app. You can still pick up. You can order at the counter and get a coffee really quickly. But if you want to come and have um, a breakfast, a brunch, a lunch and catch up with someone, or do some work, then it's it's possible because we have that space. We have more seating, more ch- more uh, tables. So that's been the strategy, um, and we'll see. Like things are moving and changing. It's been so dynamic the last three years. You just have to keep pivoting and you have to remain agile. And I thought six months ago, return to work looked really really challenged. But now every day, I feel more increasingly that people are going to go back because the economy is slowing interest rates are starting to have an impact. There's been some job losses. They want the unemployment rate to rise to a more sustainable level, which is not putting as much pressure on inflation. So I think that will force a lot of people to go back to the office because we're in a bit of a lull. And now, and, and I think honestly, the employee had a lot of leverage, but I think that is changing. And that's why a lot of employers are saying, actually, you know, instead of you having the option to work, um, in the office, we now really need you to come back two days. And now it's three days and pretty sure it'll be four days for most soon, maybe after summer. So, you know, we're just going to keep dancing and see what happens. But uh, it's been tremendously challenging for a small business. We're very lucky that we have some scale and diversification, but I feel so much for these small businesses that weathered, that were in an urban, that weathered, COVID, an existential crisis, and now reopen their doors with excitement and optimism and they find that their demand for their product has fallen 40% because people are now only in that building three days a week. That florist, that shoe um, shoe repair guy, you know, that small deli, you know, what happened to them when suddenly people didn't go back to work? You know, they, it's really, really hard and I've, I've heard some horrible stories uh, about stress and workplace pressure. And these are primarily family-owned businesses. And instead of maybe employing people and having a couple of days off a week, or now they work every day because they can't afford to employ people because the demand on Fridays is so limited and Mondays are half day. I, I really feel for them. And there has not been much time to adjust. Or there's, and there's been very limited compensation or support for these people who put their, their hard-earned money in developing something and uh, yeah, but anyway, I, I don't know the solution, but it's been really tough. No, yeah, it's been especially stark here in New York, just seeing sort of the changes in cadences and the types of new businesses that have opened and the ones that you thought would last forever and absolutely didn't. But I actually, you know, we're almost running out of time, but I have a million and one questions I want to ask you. One of them kind of leads into what you were sort of saying about the changes in businesses, especially small businesses. And this is a larger question, and it's because of 
a news item that happened this week, and I was I'm super happy to have you on the program, which is uh, that uh, I think it's Keurig uh, Dr Pepper bought a 33% stake in La Colombe, and like I I keep track of all of these news, and I'm fascinated with JAB Holdings and Keurig Dr Pepper. For those who don't know, it's the huge conglomerate that owns nearly every major coffee company if it's not Nestle. And so my, my question for you is, what do you see as a growth path when you see these deals constantly happening where one of the like major scaling coffee companies gets bought up to the same guy again? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's a fascinating transaction. Huge valuation at a billion dollars, thereabouts. Um, it's obviously encouraging for the sector and encouraging yeah. for us. But uh, I think La Colombe, I, I'm a bit of torn on this one because the founder of La Colombe, who I've not met, but I have seen speak a number of times, is very, very pro small, independent, artisanal roots, and now selling to the biggest. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if there's a lack of um, authenticity there, or in Australia we'd call it turncoat, but that <laughs> might be a bit strong. But listen, I don't begrudge that the that they've seen a commercial opportunity. That is uh, obviously incredibly lucrative and enticing. So, congratulations to them. Um, you know, but you know, they did publicly warrant that they would go a different way. But I think it's, I think it's a huge acknowledgement to what's going on in the space. I think it's great that better quality products going out there. I think Larkalom's pursued a really clear strategy of trying to get their product in as many hands as humanly possible by their cans. Um, their draft latte product, but obviously also through wholesale, like Lacolom, you'll find all over the place in um, all different types of establishments. And uh, they haven't really focused on retail. They haven't opened a lot of stores. They've closed stores. They haven't really been on that strategy. So for us, like it probably opens up the lane even more because I don't know how much more retail they're going to do. They're probably more focused on CPG. That's the big synergies from that deal that they get that DSD unlock. Um, so I think it's exciting. Um, it, I think it shows to us that if in the future, if we've got these amazing relationships and if we want to make the requisite investment, we could push in the CPG. I think we've got a differentiated product, an award-winning product. But most importantly, we've got you know, an evangelical brand and people love Bluestone Lane. Uh, so I think it's I think it's positive for the sector. I think there's been a number of coffee deals over obviously the last sort of seven years that have been opening the Blue Bottle acquisition by Nestle. Nestle acquiring Starbucks CPG rights was massive. Obviously, JEB buying Pete's, Pete's buying Intelligentsia, buying Stumptown, um, you know, then you have Dutch Brothers IPOing. So there's been a lot of deals. Um, RBI buying Tim Horton. So there's been so many transactions, and we're kind of one of the only brands left now that that have of some scale. And uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, then you have the emergence of some brands, these disruptors like Blank Street, that are going a million miles an hour and uh, trying to do something differently. So it's a fascinating space, but I just know when Bluestone's at its best, like we're really in a lane of our own. Not many at scale do what we do. We sort of feel like a small, very small independent, but we obviously have a larger reach than just a one or a two location brand. So for us, like 
I think we're just going to remain agile and see what happens. We're going to keep going with retail, developing those relationships. And when we start serving, you know, 100,000, 150,000 people a week, I probably feel pretty comfortable about dipping my toe in a CPG and seeing what we do there or spending more money on e-commerce or coffee subscriptions and things like that, which are, which are going at the moment, but very much ancillary versus, you know, the core of the business being retail. So um, I think the Lycolomp deals are net positive and uh, congratulations to them. And yeah, interesting. It's super, super fascinating. I'm always trying to see what JAB is doing or that entire overlord of all things. Like when they bought Starbucks, or not Starbucks, excuse me, Stumptown. Um, it, I remember I was like, what the hell? We're pretty much out of time, but I always like to ask at the end, just sort of what your major plans for the rest of the year are. It sounds like retail is your is your predominant focus along with these licensees. Is that correct? Or what are you thinking about? How many locations should we expect? Are there any other big projects on the horizon? Well, certainly our partnership with uh, Hilton and their new lifestyle brand Tempo is a huge one for us. And the first Tempo Hotel opens uh, later uh, this month. Um, well, actually opens in August. That's going to be pretty huge for us uh, because we have designed, we've been the F&B consultants, we've designed the menu and uh, some of those locations will have Bluestone Lane licensed stores in them, uh, which will open next year and, and probably for the next five to 10 years. So that's really exciting. Partnerships is a huge part of our business. So partnering with brands where we share the same core customer or similar customer overlap. So we're doing some amazing partnerships in the moment. Um, Vita Coco is one that's been super successful. We launched this new LTO, a coconut water cold brew that is kind of becoming one of the drinks of the summer in the coffee space. And that's been really successful. We've got a fantastic initiative with Frankie's Bikinis down in Montauk where we've uh, co-branded our location down there with them. Uh, you know, we, we love these partnerships and uh, we're going to keep doing those. And I think it's really a reflection on that we stand for, to be much more like a lifestyle brand than a coffee brand. When you have a coconut water group, when you have an apparel group, uh, when you have a hospitality uh, conglomerate all saying, hey, we want to partner with Bluestone. It's not just, hey, give me a coffee or put it in a room. It's really like, how do we leverage your positioning, your relationship with your locals, your loyalty program, your digital orientation and that tech, tech stack we have? And I really think a lot of that has come through this retail in-store experience. I do not believe it's because we have a product on a shelf. I think it's because we make people feel a certain way and that resonates with these other lifestyle brands. So for us, it gives us a lot of clarity that we're just going to keep focused and keep, uh, keep dedicated towards that track right now. We will push the growth channels and the ancillary businesses along. But, uh, you know, we've got to focus where we really feel we can win at the moment. And then we'll make another assessment in six months, 12 months, because the market is evolving and we'll have a bit more clarity about um, which stores are working really well with the way where people are, how, how they're going to work, where they're living, where they're spending time. And uh, yeah, so all in all, it's an exciting period of time and obviously industry dynamics are happening, so it's all good. Absolutely. Well, Nick, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kyle. Really uh, appreciate you having us on and all your support of Bluestone Lane. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.